as we remain seated, let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our lives and live through them. Amen. In 1936, a man called Dale Carnegie wrote a book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That book sold more than five million copies over the next two decades. Carnegie was a commercial salesman. He was upset by his shortness of stature, and he overcame his feelings of inferiority by giving evening lectures on the art of public speaking. He realized that in a nation of immigrants, what people feared the most was making fools of themselves whenever they opened their mouths in public. And Carnegie's prescription was very simple. Always smile, never argue with people, never disagree with what they say, never find fault. Be a nice guy. The way to get along with people is to be like them. Now, Jesus of Nazareth was not a nice guy. He was a controversial nonconformist. He rocked the boat. He asked embarrassing questions. He provoked ridicule and hostility. The 20th century novelist Dorothy Sayers once wrote this about Christ, and I quote, the people who hanged Christ, never to do them justice, accused him of being boring. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. But to those who knew him, however, he in no way suggested a milk and water person. They objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. End of quote. One of the infuriating aspects of Jesus' style of teaching was that he asked more questions than he gave answers. Whenever he was questioned, he replied with a counter-question. And this links us up with the passage that we looked at yesterday morning from Genesis chapter 4. We see this in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, the passage that was just read to us. Here we have a legal scholar, a theologian, he could well have been a priest himself, comes to Jesus with a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with a counter question, well, how do you read the law? And then the scholar responds, he combines uh, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, love God with your whole being, with Leviticus 19, loving your fellow Israelite which was extended often to the resident alien who also embraced the law. So here is a man who shows some insight into the scriptures of his day, and Jesus is impressed. He commends his understanding. Now that understanding 
has to be translated into action. So he tells the man, well, do this. Not know this, but do this and you will live. Sound practice matters more than sound theology. But he seeking to justify himself. Now this is the underlying motive behind the question that Luke brings out. He probably thinks, well, if only we could, I could divide humanity into two groups of people, and then I can decide which group do I have an obligation to and which group do I not. And then if I have done my obligation to this particular group, I am justified. I can sit back. I have done well. That's the way many of us think, isn't it? In almost every society, people are habituated into giving their primary allegiance to their family or to their ethnic group or sometimes to their nation state. We are the insiders and they are the outsiders. Think of all the popular movies that we see, whether from Hollywood or Bollywood or from Taiwan. They all celebrate the hero who takes vengeance on those who have harmed or humiliated his family or nation. And the church often thinks that way. We inside, we are the saved. Those outside, they are the lost. I don't know a single Christian parent who does not want for his or her child the best education that his or her society has to offer, the best affordable health care when they leave school or university to get a good job. Every Christian parent wants that for their children. But then when I ask them, well, don't you want this for every child in your country or every child in the world? They'll say, well, but isn't that being liberal? Isn't that the social gospel? You see the hypocrisy? What gospel is there if it's not social, political, cosmic? The gospel has, is about the universe and God's purposes for the universe. And then we have to think of our personal lives, implications for our personal lives if we respond to such a gospel. Have you noticed that the first words of Jesus's public ministry in the Gospel of Luke challenge the narrow, insular, nationalist worldview of his own family and his own townsfolk in Nazareth. Instead of assuming the messianic role that was expected by the nationalists and declaring a holy war on their Roman enemies, he held up as examples of God's compassion two people who stood outside the covenant with Israel, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman, a Syrian soldier. And then he includes in his circle of 12 apostles people who would normally never associate with each other. A bunch of fishermen, a tax collector working for the Roman occupying power, and a zealot committed to overthrowing that power. So while Jesus decisively rejected the Roman philosophy of government, 
his rejection did not extend to individual Romans. Luke relates the story of the ten lepers who are healed by Jesus, but whom only one, a Samaritan, someone whose mixed ancestry and heretical theology made him an object of contempt to every devout Jew. And such a person is commended by Jesus for his spiritual sensitivity, the only one who comes back and thanks Jesus for his healing. And here in Luke chapter 10, Luke tells a lawyer a story which would have outraged most of his hearers. To be invited by Jesus to learn from a Samaritan the kind of behavior that is pleasing to the God of Israel, this was a direct assault on their religious and national identity. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus called his disciples to imitate our Heavenly Father, who makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, who sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love only those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you salute only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the pagans do the same? So Jesus calls us to imitate a God whose justice is based not on vindictiveness, vengeance, but rather generosity. God bestows his creation blessings, the sun and the rain on all life. He doesn't discriminate between the worthy and the unworthy. And in these days, the climate reminds us that we belong to one world. We are all dependent on the carbon cycle. We are neighbors to one another wherever we happen to live. And so what anthropogenic global warming represents is simply the theft of the global commons by the rich world and the rich elites in the poor world. The rich pollute the atmosphere and the commons. They steal from the rest of humankind their means of survival. And the atmosphere and the oceans have also become the medium by which wealthy companies, governments, and individuals transfer their harmful activities to other peoples and other regions. And that's why global warming is a social justice issue. For the people who suffer most as a result of it are the ones who are least responsible for it. Indeed, one-sixth of the world's population is so poor that they produce no significant carbon emissions at all. The COVID-19 pandemic, along with climate change, environmental pollution, and global terrorism, these don't respect national borders. They remind us of how what we do in a small and what may seem an insignificant part of the world, for example, the Hindu Kush mountains in Afghanistan, or a wet market in Wuhan, that these have the potential to affect the entire globe. And then we have the internet, the World Wide Web, which has connected billions of people in a way that our ancestors could never have imagined. So proximity no longer defines who our neighbor is. Let's return to the parable. One of the problems we face when listening to the parables of Jesus 
is where do we locate ourselves? And also, where do we locate God in the story? This is one of the disconcerting aspects of the parabolic style, because it's not straightforward three-point preaching. It's customary for preachers to identify ourselves with the Levite and the priest who ignore the man who's lying wounded on the roadside, beaten up by bandits. This is in keeping with Jesus' own denunciation of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. Religious professionalism often blinds us to the everyday needs of others. We turn our backs on a hurting world to absorb ourselves in a world of meaningless religious rituals. Or we are too busy in a campus like this, preparing our class assignments, perhaps writing that next journal article, so that we don't pay attention to the plight of those in our own neighborhood. Or we are fearful, for we suspect that it will demand more of us than just a little charitable donation. Perhaps if we truly get involved with others, it might call for a change of direction to our lives. I wonder how many white evangelical pastors and seminary professors joined the civil rights movement in this country in the 1950s and 1960s, or more recently, how many have been active with Black Lives Matter or Me Too. Jesus reminded us in Matthew 5 that discipleship is simply about imitating God our Father. But where is God in the parable? Traditionally, the Samaritan is identified with Jesus himself, the one who, as we saw, is always responding to human need throughout his ministry, who ignores people's social status or religious affiliation, he not only binds up his wounds, takes him to a local inn, pays for his long-term treatment and restoration to health. But can we perhaps also see Jesus as the man who is beaten up by bandits and left to die? That is, after all, how his ministry ended. And Jesus continues to identify himself with all such innocent victims of violence and injustice. He is the vulnerable one in our world, whether it's the political refugee, the tortured dissident, the starving child, the abused single mother. Jesus is there in and with their suffering. And Jesus taught us that those who respond to him are the true imitators of God. One of the forgotten characters in the story is the innkeeper. And yet think of what it must have cost him to trust this stranger, a Samaritan, to believe that he would be true to his word and come back and recompense him for his expenses. That took trust. So you see how borders are being reconfigured in this story. Those who are in and those who are out are not what we expected. 
And so we come to the final question that Jesus poses to the legal scholar, the theologian. And it's the most important, for it goes to the very heart of the parable. What was a question about who is my neighbor is now turned around. Who behaved in a neighborly way? The Samaritan is constituted as a neighbor by his neighborly action towards a stranger. So nouns are turned into adverbs, as so often with Jesus. God doesn't care what we think about the Bible, our doctrine of scripture. What matters is how do we use the Bible? He doesn't care whether we call ourselves Christians or Evangelicals or Wesleyans or Methodists or whatever label we like. What matters is whether we act in a Christ-like way. And those of us who live in centers of political and financial power, like the US, can simply through neighborly actions, like writing a letter to a national newspaper or buying shares in a corporation so that one can attend the annual general meeting and raise questions about that corporation's global practices or organizing a peaceful public protest and so on, we can have a real influence on what is happening in another part of the world. The actions would express our solidarity with those we call our family in the worldwide church. So I find it troubling that mission has been reduced to what we, the fairly well-off, do in other cultures and places. It does not seem to apply to what we can do for others from where we are. And in our interconnected world, what we do or fail to do in our own backyard can have ramifications for good or for evil in remote places. So of the many examples that I could give you, perhaps I could single out just one. Churches can do more for their fellow Christians in Muslim-majority countries by showing hospitality to Muslims in their own towns and not simply seeing them as just targets for evangelism. And just imagine if large numbers of Christians got on the streets of major Western cities to publicly demonstrate on behalf of their oppressed Palestinian brothers in Gaza and the West Bank, or call on the US and the EU to stop selling arms to Israel or giving Israel preferential trade deals until it improved its human rights record. Such actions will also make many Muslims in the Middle East and elsewhere more willing to listen to what their Christian neighbors have to say because they would now realize that, yes, maybe not all Christians in the West are Zionists. What would the world look like if American Christians were to think and act as members of the global body of Christ, promoting a global common good, showing solidarity with the most vulnerable and weakest of humanity wherever they may be found. And the same goes for Korean Christians, for Indian Christians, Nigerian Christians, Chinese Christians, Sri Lankan Christians, every other nationality. 
Our baptismal identity is our fundamental identity. We are Christians first before we are Americans or Indians or Sri Lankans. Let me conclude. <clears throat> the Desert Fathers were Christians who from the third century onwards went out to the Syrian and Egyptian desert to seek God more deeply. And many Christians would go after these fathers to seek guidance as to how to live within a pagan society. The story is told of some brothers who went to see Abba Felix, one of the desert fathers. They begged him for a word of advice, but the old man kept silence. After they had pleaded with him for a long time, he said to them, do you wish to hear a word? They said, yes, Abba. Then the old man said to them, there are no more words these days. When the brothers used to consult the old men and when they did what was said to them, God showed the old men how to speak. But now since people ask without doing that which they hear, God has withdrawn the grace of the word from the old men and they do not find anything to say since there are no longer any who carry their words out. Hearing this, the brothers groaned, saying, Pray for us, Abba. When did you last hear a pastor or one of your seminary professors tell you, I have nothing more to teach you, because unless you obey what you heard last Sunday or last week, I really have nothing more to say. It's as we practice the little that we do know, walking in the way of Jesus in our campuses and neighborhoods, that more understanding comes. That is the way of discipleship. Let's spend a few moments in silence. And in the silence, I invite you to respond to what God has been saying to your life. Lord, have mercy upon us and write your words deep in our hearts that they may bear the fruit that honors you. Amen.